0: Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 26, the book of Acts chapter 11. Before we begin Acts chapter 11 today, I want to take a breather to summarize the high points of our study up to now so that we don't get too swamped in facts and in new terms and we lose our way. But before we do that, I feel it necessary to speak to you from my heart, for for a few moments anyway. Now we've spent 25 weeks, about 6 months, just getting through the first 10 of the 28 chapters of the book of Acts. And I have probably spent more time on Bible history and the history of the Jewish people and delving into their culture and customs and mindset and then trying to connect it all together than any book I've ever taught. Most who are listening to me, here and online, are Gentiles. So you have little idea what modern... Jews, let alone ancient Jews of the Bible are all about and you may also be thinking why should you even care to know how does this help us to understand God's word and apply it to our lives now I forewarned you at, of this approach at the outset of our study because outside of teaching the book of Acts in this way I don't know how else to extract its intended meaning the reason for my long-winded and broad approach in teaching you about these matters is that Acts is the structural bridge that spans two eras, the Old and the New Testaments. It is the binding link between the law of Moses and the advent of Messiah. However, most important for our proper understanding is that acts is a 100% jewish bridge it is a bridge built entirely upon the bedrock of jewish society the steel of jewish thought processes the connecting rivets of the jewish religion of that era and the labor of the historical traditions that had been developed and nurtured over the centuries that drove Jewish behavior and decisions. All the writers of the Old Testament were Jews, more correctly Hebrews, and all the writers of the New Testament were Jews, except for the God-fearer Luke, who seems to have remained a Christ-believing Gentile, yet threw in his lot with the Jewish disciples and the Apostles of Christ, even becoming a traveling companion of Paul. And all that might have been missing from him being a Jewish convert was circumcision. Now I've often been asked, what caused my wife and me to venture away from the mainstream Christian institutions and start this ministry of Bible teaching from a Hebrew Roots perspective. A way of teaching that challenges things that we've all believed at one time or another. A friend of mine, Dr. Robert McGee, once said to me that sometimes we need to pause and seriously examine why we believe what we believe. why we believe what we believe. And I've stated to very close friends for a long time now that in my estimation most Christian institutions have backed away from leading their flocks in a search for the truth and instead have encouraged their members to uphold and defend their particular doctrinal status quo. That is, depending on how long a certain denomination has been in existence sometime at their earliest inception a group of their leadership decided on what was truth what they believed in, listed them, called them doctrines and then set out to teach these doctrines as immutable. Except in the rarest cases these doctrines can't be challenged. Rather they must be accepted without question, adhered to in perpetuity, or the dissenter is typically asked to go elsewhere. For these denominations, you see, the search for truth ended the day their doctrines were posted. Because from their perspective, all the truth that existed had been found. Now perhaps the main issue that I have with that mindset is it doesn't allow for the playing out of the mysteries of biblical prophecy. Nor does it allow for ongoing progressive revelation and the inevitable twists and turns it brings with it. Thus new information and new circumstances are often covered over or willfully ignored because they may contradict long-held doctrine. The unexpected return of Israel as a Jewish nation in 1948 is one such example of this. Today, the Bible is not usually taught in a verse-by-verse, chronological fashion, nor is it taught in its historical context. For one reason, in this era of hectic lives and short attention spans... The congregational audience usually has no patience for it. So I applaud you for hanging in there. <clears throat> Rather, the Bible is mainly taught according to what scholars call apologetics. And apologetics are arguments or reasoned justifications of something usually a justification of certain established religious doctrines. Therefore, if a Bible passage seems to say something different than the denominational doctrine demands, then the Bible passage is either declared irrelevant for our times, or it's allegorized in a very well thought out way so that it will conform with this unchangeable doctrine. Therefore, I want to say that once again, for many centuries now, the issue has been less about searching for God's truth or embracing a new revelation with an open mind and a thirsty soul, but more about defending cherished familiar beliefs and traditions that are securely locked behind a door of denominational creeds and doctrines. If Yeshua's first disciples had thought and behaved that way, instead of being open to the new revelation of His coming and all that it entailed, the faith we all hold dear and count on would have been stillborn. Rather, I want to be personally prepared. I want to help prepare you. For whatever comes next in God's redemptive plan for mankind, and much has been promised, much is yet to come. I don't want to miss it. I don't want you to miss it. All because we have closed minds and we prefer to adhere to rigid man-made doctrines. So here at Seed of Abraham Torah class, we're doing our best, admittedly imperfectly, to try to crack open just a wee bit what has in many cases been a locked and guarded door. And the key to this door is to understand these ancient people of the Bible, their their times, their mindset, the intent of their words, and the context and the circumstances under which they uttered them as we find them in the Holy Scriptures. <clears throat> now, I realize that this is often uncomfortable for you. Often. Because it's much easier to just settle on some basic matters and never have to address them again. Most people, truth be known, come to church to casually fellowship with other like-minded believers and to be emotionally uplifted. They want to feel better when they leave than when they arrived. They want validation for what they've always believed. However, just as maturing from a child to an adult forces us, hopefully, to reconsider things in life that at one time seemed simple and easy to understand as children, but involve multiple shades of gray and conflicting principles as we reach adulthood. So it is that as we learn of Christ and of his sacrificial love that drove him to the cross, if we endeavor to mature in him, we will necessarily find out that certain God principles and patterns aren't so straightforward, aren't so easy to apply for our lot to our lives as we first thought. And sometimes to our greatest discomfort, we will also find out that certain doctrines were formed due to human agendas in the past that are not so apparent to our congregation today and once on earth these can be troubling however our goal in learning god's word and in response being obedient to it being obedient to it should not be about a search for comfort it should be about a search for truth for truth. And I can tell you from experience the truth isn't always comfortable. God's word is so wide and so deep that no man, no teacher, no no pastor, no rabbi has a corner on the truth. Or knows all the truth. Because God's way is to reveal more and more of the truth in His good time. So our search should be ongoing. Yet there are things we can reasonably test, we can conclude and know with a certainty if we work at it, and at times this leads us to things we've assumed were truth, but new information that, take, that better conforms with God's word demands we have to unlearn them now. takes courage and persistence it takes faith it takes humbling ourselves before the Holy Spirit such that we're not so allergic to finding out that we may have been wrong about some important things concerning our faith so that we just close our eyes and ears to it but as no other book ever written the Bible tells us that if we will diligently seek for the truth within its God-inspired passages, we are guaranteed to find it. We are also told that the truth will set us free. Free from what? From bondage to sin. From bondage to sin that began with a lie in the Garden of Eden. It's not so that we can be free to do anything we feel like, to believe anything we feel like. Truth sets us free. Freedom is not gained from stubbornly, perhaps fearfully holding on to humanly imposed doctrines and customs that have been so warm and customary to us over the years that we've not even wanted to think about them twice we've not been terribly motivated to ask ourselves why we believe what we believe. That is, however, indeed what I'm asking you to do. So what we've learned thus far in the book of Acts are things that for some can be unsettling. For others, informing and enlightening. For instance... That belief in Jesus Christ arose from the religion of the Jews, just as Yeshua himself was a hereditary, genealogical, and cultural Jew. The religion of the Jews, since sometimes after the Babylonian exile, is what we today call Judaism, even though there's no evidence that during New Testament times or before that the term Judaism was used to label the Jewish religion. We also discovered that the religion of the Jews in New Testament times was practiced much like Christianity is practiced in modern times. That is, Judaism consisted of a number of factions that had shared a few commonly held and fundamental beliefs among them, but also many more beliefs that were at opposite ends of the spectrum, such as if bodily resurrection was possible. Further, because of the Babylonian exile some 600 years prior to New Testament times and because the vast majority of exiled Jews had voluntarily decided to remain in the various foreign lands to which they were sent, there was a distinct split in how Judaism was practiced between the Jews in the Holy Land versus those who lived out in the Diaspora, that is the Jews who lived in those foreign lands. The Jews living in the Holy Land were outnumbered 20 to 1 by the Diaspora Jews. However, the Diaspora Jews in general looked to Jerusalem for their spiritual direction because that's where the temple and the priesthood and the Sanhedrin were located. We learned that there were other factional splits in Judaism as well. And these factional splits play significant roles in our New Testament stories and their outcomes. The most familiar one to Christians is that split between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the two most predominant social-religious political parties of the Jews in that time. But the cause of this split isn't apparent without understanding basics of Judaism and especially Jewish society in that era. It was the aristocratic Sadducees who operated the temple, controlled the priesthood, and ran the Jewish high court to Sanhedrin. But it was the learned Pharisees who were the overseers of the synagogues. Thus the synagogue and the temple were rivals and they held little in common. The synagogue looked much like a typical church looks like with its building, seating, speaking platform and its authority structure. The synagogue is where rabbis and others taught their doctrines and their Bible interpretations and the synagogue was the center of everyday Jewish life. There was only one temple. But there are hundreds and hundreds of synagogues and there was a synagogue present generally wherever a Jewish community of sustainable size would spring up. Now, especially for the diaspora Jews who lived hundreds, in some cases a thousand miles or more away from Jerusalem, it wasn't, un- it wasn't usual, rather, that they would ever, in their lifetimes, come to visit the temple, for a biblical festival or to sacrifice there. It was simply too expensive too time-consuming, too dangerous in some ways, and certainly too impractical. So their attachment to their Jewish religion was to their local synagogue. And when people went rarely to worship and have fellowship, even in Jerusalem, it was usually not to the temple, but to their synagogue. So we must necessarily understand that for Yeshua and for all of his followers, as well as all regular Jews, theirs was the world of the synagogue. And only on certain ceremonial occasions did they venture to the temple and interact with the priests. Now the central doctrinal tenets of the synagogue can be summed up in one Hebrew word, halakha, Halakha is a merging and mingling of the biblical Torah with traditions and ancient customs. It was their manual, not just for their religion, but for everyday behavior. It was not a written manual yet. That wouldn't come for another couple of centuries. Rather, it was still taught orally, and it was enforced by various Jewish religious authorities who didn't agree on (laughs) many important matters. And this is one of the main reasons for the several factions of Judaism that developed in the never-ending infighting that usually amounted only to passionate debate. Sometimes, though, it spilled over into violence. All the disciples, all the followers of Yeshua belonged to one faction or another of Judaism and to one synagogue or another. So they didn't have a single unified mindset even after coming to belief. And we see this exact thing play out among the disciples because we hear in Acts of of Hellenist believers Greek speakers versus Hebrew believers Hebrew speakers who don't trust one another to impartially dole out money and food to the widows among their group. Despite their various levels of devotion to Judaism, for the Jewish people there was no getting around the reality that in the New Testament times the world was a Gentile Roman world. The holy lands were in the hands of the Romans. And the Diaspora Jews lived in one province or another of the Roman Empire. And it had been this way for going on two centuries by the time of Christ's execution. The Jews of the Diaspora, by necessity, dealt every day with the majority Gentile world and all of its complexities. And like the proverbial frog in the kettle, slowly and imperceptibly, the Diaspora Jews especially found themselves looking and thinking more and more like their Gentile neighbors. But the more pious and zealous Jews of the Holy Land who lived nearer to the greatest symbol of their heritage, the Temple, nearer to the power center of Jewish religious authority, Jerusalem, they tended to keep as much distance between themselves and Gentiles as possible. It was in this context that a new faction of Judaism, one born in the world of the synagogue, Rose and this faction believed that Yeshua of Nazareth was the Messiah that they'd been waiting for. But progressive revelation visibly demonstrated to them he was a different kind of Messiah than the long held Jewish customs and traditions had said that they were supposed to expect. he would not lead the Jewish people in revolt against Rome. And that was expectation number one. Further, he wasn't a mere man. He was indeed a descendant of King David, but he also claimed to be God. Even more perplexing, if not disappointing, he would achieve the goal of bringing in the kingdom of God, a Jewish kingdom, through his death, and resurrection not through his personal charisma and a stunning series of military victories that would finally liberate Judah more this would be a spiritual kingdom as opposed to a typical physical kingdom most Jews then were like most Christians today this simply was not what their trusted religious leaders had told them that a messiah would be and do so even the vivid reality of Yeshua and His many miracles that so many of them had personally witnessed didn't sway them. Maintaining their familiar doctrinal status quo, that was what mattered. And it was also what was demanded by the Jewish religious leadership, not accepting the newly revealed truth, Thus we find upon Yeshua's death that a small group of 12 disciples took up the cause as its leadership. And their particular faction of Judaism became known as the Way. They didn't stop going to synagogue. They didn't stop going to the temple. They didn't stop practicing their Judaism. They didn't stop obeying the law of Moses. In fact, on one particular occasion, the first Shavuot, Pentecost, after Yeshua's crucifixion, the twelve disciples, all Galileans by the way, were in Jerusalem in obedience to the law. And along with thousands of diaspora Jews who were there for the same purpose, they saw and experienced something that shocked them. The Holy Spirit of God visibly descended upon Yeshua's followers and they all began speaking in foreign languages that they didn't know. Peter and others of the disciples used this event as a springboard to begin to teach other Jews about Yeshua and what the coming of the Spirit meant, but they were arrested by the high priest and told to stop speaking about this Yeshua. Now not long afterward, a Greek-speaking Jewish believer from Samaria named Stephen went to the one, to the, to one of the 400 or so synagogues in Jerusalem to preach the gospel to them. And they became so incensed by what he had to say that they took him to the Sanhedrin. In a hasty kangaroo court trial, he was convicted and promptly stoned to death. And immediately following this, a number of Jews in Jerusalem set out to destroy this new radical faction of Judaism and so the terrified believers fled Jerusalem to safer parts of the Holy Land and to nearby countries. In a response, the Sanhedrin sent Paul... Shaul, Saul, a very strict Pharisee, after one particular group of believers who fled to safety in Damascus, Syria. And on the journey to arrest these Jesus sympathizers, Christ confronted Paul in spirit form from heaven. And Paul, although blinded, became the newest believer the same zeal he had for rounding up and punishing believers he'd now use to spread the gospel message he was trying to kill. Well, back in the Holy Land, Peter and James, James, Yeshua's brother, were the unquestioned leaders of the way. Peter was roving around making new disciples of the Holy Land Jews and checking in on the welfare of uh, some of the scattered believers when he had a visitation that would forever change yet another fundamental mistake in this halakha-based Jewish theology. But before he had his vision, a Gentile Roman army officer named Cornelius had a visitation from an angel telling him to go and fetch Peter because there was something Peter needed to tell him. Peter's vision happened shortly afterward. The vision was a parable. It involved a cloth sheet being lowered down from heaven with all kinds of animals in it. Some, if not all, being prohibited as food for Jews according to the law of Moses. God told Peter, kill and eat this vision greatly confused Peter not only because of the instruction but because the words used didn't pertain to food they pertained to people they pertained to objects but not to food and as the men arrived to escort Peter to visit Cornelius Peter suddenly realized what this vision parable was telling him first of all it had nothing to do with food rather it was that Peter and all Jews were to stop regarding Gentiles as unclean. Why? Had God recently cleansed Gentiles and made them clean? No. God had always created Gentiles clean as He does all things. God creates all things clean. In fact, Gentiles represented a spiritual status that the Torah calls common. Common was a perfectly fine status It wasn't evil, it wasn't wrong, certainly not unclean. It was Judaism that had developed traditions that declared that Gentiles were unclean. So Jews couldn't have anything to do with them or they would risk becoming ritually defiled. Thus, since God had entrusted Jews with the good news, then this faulty theology about Gentiles would have to be straightened out so that believing Jews would go to Gentiles, and then Gentiles could also be saved. Well, while Peter is talking to Cornelius and his household, in a second Pentecost event, the Holy Spirit visibly fell on these Gentiles, indicating that they believed the gospel message and that God had accepted them. This stunned Peter. Peter and six other Jewish believers who had come with him. They never imagined it possible that Gentiles could accept the Jewish Messiah and that God would accept them without first becoming Jews. But now that they had accepted Christ and the Rav HaKodesh had fallen upon them, ought they be circumcised? Become official Jews? A number of Jewish believers thought so. Our Bibles usually call them the circumcision faction. This would remain a very contentious issue within the way, and it appears that Peter was as ambivalent about it as Paul was outspoken against it. This pretty well sums up the road we've thus far traveled. In the book of Acts. With that, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 11. And we shall continue our journey. Acts chapter 11. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1375. Acts chapter 11. The emissaries and the brothers throughout Judah, Judah heard that the Goyim, the Gentiles, had received the word of God. But when Kepha went up to Jerusalem, the members of the circumcision faction criticized him, saying, You went into the homes of uncircumcised men and even ate with them. In reply, Kepha, as Peter, began explaining in detail what had actually happened. I was in the city of Yahful praying. And in a trance, I had a vision. I saw something like a large sheep being lowered by its four corners from heaven. And it came down to me. And I looked inside and saw four-footed animals, beasts of prey, crawling creatures, wild birds. And I heard a voice tell me, get up, Kepha, slaughter and eat. And I said, no, sir, absolutely not. Nothing unclean or trafe has ever entered my mouth but the voice spoke again from heaven stop treating as unclean what God has made clean this happened three times then everything was pulled back up into heaven and at that very moment three men who, who had been sent to me from Caesarea arrived at the house where I was staying and the spirit told me to have no misgivings but to go about going back with them and these six brothers who also came with me and we went into the man's house and he told us how he had seen the angel standing in his house and saying send Yafo and bring back Shimon known as Kepha he has a message for you which will enable you and your whole household to be saved but I had hardly begun speaking when the Ruach HaKodesh the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us in the beginning And I remembered that the Lord had said, Yohanan, John, used to immerse people in water, but you will be immersed in the Ruach HaKodesh. Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as He gave us after we had come to put our trust in the Lord Yeshua as Messiah, who was I to stand in God's way? And on hearing these things, they stopped objecting. And they began to praise God, saying, this means that God has enabled the Gentiles as well to do teshuva, to repent. To have life. Now, those who had been scattered because of the persecution which had arisen over Stephen went as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. They spoke God's word, but only to the Jews. However, some of these men, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, when they arrived at Antioch, they began speaking to the Greeks too, proclaiming the good news of the Lord Yeshua. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people trusted and turned to the Lord. And to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the Messianic community in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas, Barnabas to Antioch. And on arriving and seeing for himself the grace of God at work, he was glad, and he encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with their whole hearts. For he was a good man, full of the Ruach HaKodesh and trust. Then Barnabas went off to Tarsus to look for Shaul, for Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And they met with the congregation there for a whole year, taught a sizable crowd. Also, it was in Antioch that the disciples for the first time were called Messianic. Now, during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them, named Agav, stood up and through the Spirit predicted that there was going to be a severe famine throughout the Roman Empire. It took place while Claudius was emperor. So the Talmudim disciples decided to provide relief to the brothers living in Judah, each according to his means, and they did it, sending their contribution to the elders in the care of Barnabas and Shaul. This chapter opens in the immediate aftermath of Peter's dealings with the God-fearing Gentile and new believer Cornelius and of his household. And the tone of this passage is that the Jewish believers really didn't know how to handle this revelation about the Holy Spirit falling upon Gentiles. And the circumcision faction among the believers felt that although salvation in Christ had without question come to the Gentiles as evidenced by the visible nature of the Holy Spirit coming down upon Cornelius they felt that the next logical step was for them to become a Jew and that was accomplished by circumcision in fact the belief was that while one could be saved as a Gentile one could not continue as a Gentile now it's not surprising that this was taking place in Jerusalem. It was there, in Jerusalem, that Peter encountered this opposition, since Jerusalem was the center of the original community of believers and it was where the leadership of the way operated from. But just as importantly, it was where Judaism was practiced in its most fundamentalist extremes. And so the thought of Gentiles having anything to do with the God of Israel was just not accepted. I mean, Peter may have understood from God that the standard halakha of the Jews that said Gentiles were naturally unclean was wrong, But that isn't something that is so easily dismissed by other Jewish believers just because one person says so. Old traditions and ways of thinking die much harder than that. Now notice the complaint of verse 3 that is directed towards Peter. The circumcision faction says to him, You went into the homes of uncircumcised men and ate with them. This is not an accusation that Peter essentially consorted with the enemy. Rather, this is an issue of ritual purity. And thus, the leader of the Messianic movement, Peter, Kepha, had voluntarily subjected himself to becoming defiled and thinking it's all right. This did not settle well with the Jewish believers in Jerusalem after all, shouldn't their leader be the most pious the most careful of them all as an example to the others and please keep in mind in all of our lessons throughout Acts and anywhere you might read it in the New Testament that the term the uncircumcised is simply a Jewish colloquial term that means Gentile So we see that the issue of circumcision is directly tied to ritual purity. What about a male Gentile getting circumcised solves that issue? What is it? It's because it is assumed that the only reason for circumcision is to disavow one's Gentile identity and to convert to becoming a Jew. That's the reason. And once someone is a Jew, then that person, male or female, can go into a mikveh and be ritually cleansed of all their Gentile impurity, something they could not do before their circumcision. Naturally, as a Jew, one would also follow the Jewish halakha as regards the purity provision. So the bottom line, God fear or not, Believer in Christ or not, the issue of ritual purity that surrounds Gentiles remains unchanged in the eyes of the circumcision faction of believers. And in fact, when we get to Acts chapter 15, in that famous Jerusalem council, whereby certain rules were to be implemented upon this growing number of Gentile believers, it was entirely about purity provisions. Because these new believing Gentiles expected to worship with, to dine with, to have open fellowship with Jewish believers. So the question was how the leadership of the way could assure their Jewish brethren that they wouldn't become defiled by being around these Gentile believers. So, starting in verse 4, Peter's defense for going into the home of a Gentile and eating with him is to tell the story of the vision parable that he had when he was in Yafo at Shimon the Tanner's house. And so he tells us, he tells that story nearly word for word as we read it back in Acts chapter 10 and when in verse 8 Peter gets to the part about telling God no, he's not going to eat such things as were in that sheet lowered down from heaven it is to make clear to Kepha's hearers which was mainly the circumcision faction that he is no less strictly Torah observant than they are so he was just as horrified to hear this instruction from God is the circumcision faction is right now taken aback by Peter telling them about this instruction I need to comment here as I did in Acts chapter 10 that Acts 11.9 is poorly translated in the completely uh, complete Jewish Bible where it says stop treating as unclean what God has made clean that's incorrect what it actually says is stop treating as koinos what God has made cathartos. Stop treating as common what God has made clean. Now I'm not going to go back through our last three weeks of study whereby we talked extensively about this spiritual state called common. I'm going to leave that up to you to review it for yourselves. But what I do want to add is this. I can tell you right now that Many of you are reading this statement as though God, through Peter, is saying he has recently cleansed the Gentiles when he says he has made them clean. And you'd be wrong. And the reason you're, you automatically perceive it this way is because you still see it through the lens that pervades Christianity, which says that A, Gentiles were unclean and so God had to cleanse them and B, because you still want to relate this to the kosher food laws which most Christian leaders say is what Peter's vision was all about it wasn't and C, because it is taught that the Levitical food laws were abolished for believers that's not so rather when God says he made Gentiles clean he means he created them he made them clean They were created as clean creatures. It was only Judaism, it wasn't God, who had ever at any time declared Gentiles as universally and naturally unclean creatures. So God was rebuking Peter. He wasn't informing him of a change. He was rebuking Peter. God was saying, Peter, I made Gentiles clean. You don't, I don't want you to say otherwise. I don't want you to treat them in such a way. Further, if a Gentile who naturally carries the common spiritual status accepts Christ, he or she is now elevated to the same holy status that Jews naturally carried. So Peter should stop thinking of believing Gentiles as forever stuck and their common spiritual status, they are no longer common, they are now holy as a result of their of our faith in Yeshua. and it is not by means of a physical circumcision and thus converting to Judaism that it elevates a Gentile to holy status. It's God himself who declares their elevation to holy. Nothing more. It's a declaration. Verse 15 is a telling statement. There Peter relates to his listeners that the Holy Spirit fell on these Gentiles just as it fell on us in the beginning. That is, it was another Pentecost event. Remember, Christ told the Jewish believers to wait on something amazing that was going to happen before they started their ministry. Wait! And Peter realizes that amazing event was at Pentecost. It was the starter's gun at the beginning of a race for the Jewish believers. But in Caesarea Maritima, that same starter's gun had been raised and fired, signaling the beginning of the inclusion of Gentiles. Always, the motto had been first to the Jews then to the Greeks in that order it seems that the Jews head start was over little did they know that soon the Jews would find themselves as the minority party of Christianity the most important, important statement about Peter's self defense To the circumcision faction for his associating with Gentiles is in verse 17. He says, Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us after we had come to put our trust in the Lord Yeshua the Messiah, who was I to stand in God's way? Peter says, It's not my fault. Peter doesn't second guess. Whom God deems worthy of salvation. Peter doesn't choose who the Holy Spirit's bestowed upon. The Lord does. You know, it also kind of harkens back to Gamaliel's wise statement to fellow members of the Sanhedrin about what they ought to do about Peter and this growing faction of Judaism that they didn't start and they sure don't sanction. A group that followed and worshiped the deceased carpenter from Nazareth in Acts chapter 5 we heard this in verses 38 and 39 so in the present case this is Gamaliel speaking so in the present case my advice to you is not to interfere with these people but to leave them alone for if this idea or this movement has a human origin it will collapse but if it's of God you won't be able to stop them you might even find yourself fighting God so they heeded his advice when the circumcision faction heard these wise words of Peter that of course were the truth they relented how indeed can we call ourselves followers of God and then turn around and question who God chooses as his own they instead began to praise God and a chilling reality settled in over them In verse 18 of chapter 11 we read this means God has enabled the Gentiles as well to do teshuva and have life. That is, this means that God has enabled the Gentiles as well to repent and to have life. We'll finish chapter 11 next week.